Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure, and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 10, season 1. I speak to Dr. Drew Ryder. Drew recently completed his PhD, which looked at British forces serving in the Korean War of 1950 to 1953. He spoke to me about the motivation of British soldiers and what made them endure and fight in the conflict. Drew, welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the British soldier in Korea? Hello, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so I'm Drew Ryder. I started my research into the British soldier in the Korean War um, back in 2016-17, so coming out of my master's. Um, I hadn't intended to become anything of a military historian. I was more interested in social histories. Um, but it did strike me as quite interesting how the the flow of new military history this sort of this look at the soldier and the experience and the boots on the ground over sort of the commander's tales and the bird's eye view and the maps it had a very very wide base in the first world war had a very wide base in the second world war and vietnam and the falklands and so on and so forth but the korean war was more or less untouched especially when i started my research um the korean war was almost entirely about its role in the Cold War, how the war started, how the war was conducted in a strategic sense. And there was very, very little about what it was like for the soldiers who fought there. And I found that, you know, amongst sort of knowledge of, in the general public of the Korean War, a lot of people aren't even aware that Britain was involved in the Korean War, as much as Korea is in the news, often on every few weeks. Um, and it, yeah, it struck me sort of growing out of, as my scope of my research narrowed down onto a specific topic, it struck me that Korea is possibly the most important conflict that happened since the Second World War. Obviously, there's a lot of contenders in that field. Um, but it, you know, for, for global geopolitics, it is massively important. And yet there is so little, not just research, but so little interest in what is a uniquely interesting and surprising event in 20th century history. And it, it sort of it, one thing led to another and I, I got involved studying it. So give us some background and context. Can you tell us what British forces were doing fighting in the Korean War, which starts in 1950, ends in 93? So, of course, the British involvement in Korea, it was supposed to be quite limited in scope at first. This was as the world was coming to grips with the conflict. It was the sort of the first real test of the United Nations as a fighting force and as a police action. And I don't think any of the powers involved, not least the the North Koreans, the Americans, the South Koreans, no one anticipated it was going to become a conflict on the scale that it did. Um, so if it hadn't have been for the First and the Second World War, it would have been the largest conflict of the 20th century. So it, it really did depend on what point in the war you're looking at. It started as quite a small contribution, um, two task forces. And at various points that changed, you had at a peak, there were around 10,000 British soldiers involved in the Korean War, um, you know, at its ebb around 5,000 to 7,000. Um, that's one of the surprising things about the conflict is no one's exactly sure how many British soldiers served in Korea. You'd think that the records keeping as it stood would be quite efficient, but estimates do differ quite wildly depending on 
where you look and who you ask and who was taking the notes that day. Um, but in terms of actual combat contribution, it was very much um, infantry and armour as opposed to um, you know a combined force. Uh, the Navy were... There was a, you know, a very substantial naval deployment to Korea, but the Korean War wasn't a naval conflict. The North Koreans didn't have much of a navy to speak of. Um, and the Royal Air Force's contribution was less than 20 staff. They were flying Sunderland flying boats on patrols for non-existent submarines. Um, so it was almost entirely an army affair. Um, well, this is the Royal Marines as well, but it was it was an infantryman's affair. So what was the size and nature of British forces in Korea? You've already alluded to that. Yes. So um, it usually consisted of a few battalions at a time, which rotated out on an annual basis. So no soldier spent, or not many soldiers spent more than a year um, fighting in Korea. Um, again, for the most part, it was infantry contributions. It was infantry regiments. There were also armour in form of centurion tanks um, and obviously the support vehicles for them um, and artillery. So it was, um, as I say, it was very much a ground fighting force. Um, and the South Koreans were the vast contributors to the Allied forces on you know, well, sorry, I've gotten a bit tongue-tied. Yeah, the South Koreans were naturally the vast majority of Allied forces, uh, followed by the Americans, um, who were also very hugely significant. It's it's understandable when people overlook the other countries in the Korean War, just because of the scale of the involvement of the US and the South Koreans. Um, but as I've said, there were around 10,000 British soldiers at the peak of the conflict um, deployed to Korea from various regiments. So, Drew, what is the balance between sort of conscripts or national service and regular um, soldiers, sort of long term professionals who obviously form the core of the British Army post-war? Of course. So the one of the prevailing notions regarding the Korean War for Britain is that it was a national servicemen's war. And you know, there's no doubt that there was a hugely significant contribution to the war effort made in terms of national servicemen. But obviously that number fluctuated throughout the conflict itself. And for the most part, you know, the, the vast majority of regiments, it was overwhelmingly regular soldiers over national servicemen. There were some instances where it came close to a 50-50 split uh, for some fighting forces. But again, for the most part, it was mainly regular soldiers. And it's also worth noting that on paper, at least, you had to volunteer to be sent to Korea. Um, in practice, quite a lot of the time that meant someone saying, I need volunteers to go to the Korean War. You, you and you come forward, you're changing regiment. Um, but no, in at least on paper, it was only people who wanted to be there. And obviously air quotes over that. Were conscripts mainly integrated into existing units? Um, they didn't form complete units by themselves? No, no, they didn't. They were usually integrated with more experienced soldiers alongside them. Um, that actually led to some very interesting interactions and some very interesting dynamics in different units, particularly when they first reached Korea. Um, the chap called Sergeant Major Patterson, who I think I was talking to you about earlier, um, he reflected quite often in his um, in his recollections of the conflict that sometimes the the national servicemen and the new lads were better soldiers than the experienced troops because the experienced troops tend to be quite lax you know, quite lax about their safety. You know, they've they've done this before; they know what they're doing, and they would be the first ones to not bother wearing a helmet or to not bother putting their 
their flak jackets on and they would be the first ones to do something silly and get hurt. And, you know, it, it, showing off, to, to put not too fine a point on it, is what he describes as the older soldiers would show off and, you know, would put themselves in compromising positions as a result. But obviously those instances are relatively limited, but they did happen and enough to, you know, enough to be remembered 70 years later. And so what was the nature of fighting that British forces were involved in uh, Korea? Could you just give us a rough idea of what type of operations you might be involved in if you're a conscript, say, in sort of 51 and how that may be changed by 53? Of course. So, well, as you mentioned, it was a very, very dynamic war at certain phases. It was especially in the, the opening months of the war up until the autumn and winter of 1950. It was very, very rapid as North Korean forces were rolled back. So at some times in the war, it might have resembled the Second World War or what we tend to remember as the Second World War. So large combined arms forces making rapid advances. You had naval landings at the Battle of Incheon, um, which I suppose if you look at it in a certain light, it's quite re- you know, reflective of D-Day. Um, you had Royal Marines conducting special forces operations behind enemy lines, um, and you had large infantry assault. And behind all of that, there was this sort of constant counterinsurgency war trying to fight North Korean insurrectionists and um, infiltrators um, behind the South Korean lines. Later in the war, it becomes much more reminiscent of the First World War. And I'd say reminiscent more than reflective, because this is what soldiers themselves tended to to frame the war in terms of. They framed their memories in line with what they understood to be the First World War. Um, so you'd be involved in trench fighting, in dugouts. Um, it was barbed wire. It was combat patrols between the lines. And you know, a lot of the time it was fighting off human waves and then charging back. And that was sort of the state that the war existed in until the ceasefire in 1963. Um it is worth mentioning that it wasn't quite as simple as that, and there were nuances, and there are you know, pushes forward and retreat withdrawals back. There's um, there's notable instances like the defence of the River Imjin, the Battle of the Imjin, which was really three or four battles fought by two or three different countries, and each one has a different name for where they were fighting. So if you were to ask the Australians and the New Zealanders, that's the Battle of Kapyong, because they were fighting in the next valley over in basically the exact same terms, albeit a little bit more successfully. Um, and obviously for Britain, it's the Battle of the River Imjin because the British forces, the Gloucesters, were defending the Imjin River. Um, and of course, it all depended on what your combat role was um, in the British forces. Like if you were in an armoured vehicle, if you were in the tanks, your your combat was very, very different from an infantryman, which in turn is very, very different from an artilleryman. And you know, there, there are actually some very interesting instances where non-combatant roles in the army had to be sort of very quickly rushed into the nearest trench to help hold the line. So you know, office clerks and administrative staff had to fight at some point. So it, it could be a very, very mixed bag. There isn't a single picture of the Korean War to paint as as sort of mangled and messed an answer as that is. So if we define morale as the will to fight, uh, how would you assess the morale of British forces during the... Um, I would actually assess it as being quite strong if if we phrase it purely in terms of will to fight. But again, that's quite a detailed picture to paint with quite a broad brush. Um, so there was never any major breakdown in British morale throughout the war. There were definitely low points, um, particularly during the, the retreats in uh, late 1950 and early 1951 against huge numbers of Chinese forces. But there was never a sod this, what are we doing here moment en masse. But those moments did occur on much smaller levels. Uh, so 
I'd argue the most famous veteran of the Korean War for Britain is uh, Maurice Micklewhite, Sir Michael Caine. Um, and he, uh, in a few of his memoirs and a few of his interviews, has spoken about his experiences in Korea. And one of his one of his more notable quotes for it was an officer approaching him and saying, I need volunteers to go and, you know, we're going to go and raid the enemy trench. And he said, nuts to you. And the officer said, right, okay, I'll give you all five bob if we go and raid this enemy trench. And his line is, there I was fighting against communism for capitalism and being paid five bob to do it. What what better example is there? And obviously that's a joke that's been crafted in reflection over many years. Um, but I'm in very little doubt that there would have been a lot of the time where someone's come up and said, Right, chaps, we've got an idea, and everyone's just gone nuts to that. Yeah, it's there's uh, one of the other examples I came across is a lieutenant telling his captain, "You're absolutely stark raving mad." When he ordered them to fix bayonets, because in, he, he'd say he had a massive argument with him after the fact, and this captain was saying, "I thought it would be glorious. We could have charged across the line and swept them away." And this lieutenant had said, "If I was on the North Korean lines and I'd seen the British fix bayonets and start charging towards me, first I'd light a cigarette and watch them." Then I'd wait for them to get close and gun the lot down. And so they were quite sort of quite blunt with people about what they thought was a bad idea in a lot of cases. Again, these aren't the rule, they're more the exception. Um, and these are just sort of what does come through in recollections and retellings. And were there any reported sort of cases or protests, desertions or combat refusals? Um, aside from what I've just mentioned, not a great deal. And I suppose that's the nature of the research I conducted. I'm looking at interviews and um, and recollections, and not many people would sort of gladly go on camera and say, yes, I deserted, I'm very happy I did, I got arrested and all of this. Um, so the, the image that I've been able to see, the image that's been presented to me, that's not really there. That's not to say it didn't happen, just it didn't happen en masse. Um, the best place to look for that might be... Um, might be in the cases of prisoners of war and, you know, for not deserted, but people who were captured and claimed they deserted. Let's turn our discussion to the motivational factors that underpin the morale of British forces in Korea. Starting with leadership, from your research, what was the role of a small group led by regimental NCO officers? I would say it was incredibly important in the Korean War. Um, so it's it's sort of that brothers in arms mythology that always comes up when you look at conflict. And, you know, sometimes it's quite overinflated, sometimes less so. Um, but it really was important to soldiers in Korea on a very personal level. It gave a lot of young men uh, father figures or at least elderly brother figures to look up to um, in the trenches. And it was a sort of a very important coping mechanism for what they were going through. Um, so th there's a lot of instances where NCOs took... Um, I think the, the phrase that's normally used in histories for this sort of behaviour is mothering, but I find that sort of quite unnecessarily gendered. And I'd say sort of more parental roles with their with their underlings. Um, so things like remembering when soldiers' birthdays were, and you know, making sure that they had the morning at ease on their birthdays, and you know, officers and NCOs making sure that you know everyone had a drink to eat, or you know, have you written home to your mother was one. <laughs> it was um, one of the interviews and one of the one of the ones I looked at, where it was a soldier who had his sergeant major pestering him every single day, right home to your mother, she's missing you. Which I suppose speaks as much to the sergeant major as it does to this soldier. And um, he actually, he brought him up in front of his uh, his commanding officer <laughs> and said, that, right, I've been getting worried letters from your mother every single week. Please just write to her and say you're okay. 
and it's sort of maintaining the social hierarchy and the social bonding in the unit. Um, I think it's about the third time I brought him up as well, but Sergeant Major Patterson, who was one of the most inter- interesting interviews I listened to, um, he was very, very caring, would be the word, for his soldiers. He he fretted over them. He worried about them every single minute of every single day, and that reflects in his in his interview, in his recollection. It, it's you know, he would almost like a mother fussing over a child wearing a coat on the way out of the door. It's make sure you've got your helmet, make sure you've got your armor, make sure your boots aren't wet, those sorts of things. And there was a tremendous deal of care and consideration. In the interviews I've listened to, again, it's the picture I've been presented. Um, And of course, you know, there were people who talked about, oh, you know, Sergeant such and such was just another bastard. I couldn't stand him. And I'm sure that was quite a pervasive view, but there is a notable difference between their opinions of the NCOs they had when they were in training and the opinions of the NCOs they had once they were out on the battle, well, not on the battlefield, but in Korea on deployment. The role of sort of um, peer group relationships with sort of their mates of the same sort of organisational status, their private, the mates who were their private. What sort of role did those sort of relationships? I'd say that was, if not more important, it's certainly equally as important as sort of the role NCOs played in taking care of others. It was what kept soldiers ticking on a day-to-day basis. It wasn't, you know, the army, it wasn't the regulations, it wasn't this mission of defending South Korea from communism. What kept most soldiers going was the four lads they shared a bivy with at the end of the day. And, you know, they had to share everything. They shared food, they shared clothes, they shared baths. It was... It was how they lived. It was the only way they could keep their mental... Not the only way, but it was the most important way, I think, that they kept their sanity together in what they were going through. And you know, what existed outside their periphery of their immediate friend group doesn't crop up in their memories. It's there, but it's a blob in the background. What they recall is the four lads they were with, probably their NCOs and what they did, and obviously a few other memories. But you know, to, to play at that old mythology, it was brothers in arms. It was it was soldiers who had to care for each other because no one else is going to. And you know, a particularly touching story, it's from, from one of the armoured units and the tank drivers. It was, they always made sure the tank driver had the best night's sleep wherever they were settling. They made sure he got the best bunk, he got the best breakfast, he got the first round of tea because he was driving the tank. He was keeping everyone else alive and, you know, not not crashing. So it was almost self-serving that you looked after others to be looked after yourself. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's quite touching. It's quite it, it, it's quite nice to see this humanity in the middle of a war zone. And what about the association that soldiers may have had with their regiment or their unit? Was there any sort of organisational cohesion, some uh, theory term? Um, I wouldn't say it comes across particularly strongly on an organisational level, more so in training. Um, so if you look at uh, David Green's memoirs of the Korean War, he is immensely proud of being in the Gloucesters Regiment. So he'd come from a rough background, not particularly many prospects, and really put his all into army life when he got um, when he was conscripted into national service. And he was exceedingly proud of the regiment's history. He ended up sort of doing a deep dive into it, and you know, oh, you know, we had the two cap badges because during the Napoleonic War they'd fought in line and re-effaced and fought in two directions. And you know, there's a lot, there are a few instances where people are fiercely proud of their regiment and their battalion before they've got to Korea. Um, but the, and there's a lot of cases of it being national identity. So you're in a Highland regiment, so you've got to behave like a Highlander, which 
was predominantly the view of Englishmen who were put in Highland regiments. Um, you sort of you have to keep a stiff upper lip and you know you have to keep the side up. Um, poor but he dropped a live grenade or his friend had dropped a live grenade in his foxhole and it malfunctioned and just the sort of the cap had gone and shot off. And he's there sort of saying, I'm sat in the corner and I made the conscious decision that I'm not going to I'm not going to make a fuss about it because that just wouldn't be English in front of all the Scotsmen. Um, but you know, beyond that, a lot you know, a lot of soldiers were sort of were drafted in as reinforcements. A lot of soldiers hadn't been with their parent regiment for particularly long. Um on, on you know the, the the nature of national service you did your training with one regiment and then you were sent to another unless you volunteered um so it it could be strong it could be weak it, it, it varied person to person is what i'm saying i'm sure that's not a particularly satisfactory answer but th- there were cases of people who lived that life and you know, i i love my regiment and there were cases of people who couldn't who couldn't give a monkeys and what about the role of the mission or you know the un un sort of mission in korea uh, and notions of patriotism and nationalism did that come across at all in soldiers motivation to fight so i think we touched on this a little bit before we started the interview yes and no is the answer to that as i keep on repeating i'm sure amongst the rank and file amongst your ncos and your you know your your your, your boots on the ground at the time, they didn't seem to care very much. It was just the last place they've been sent around the globe. Um, some people were outright hostile, particularly people who had been drafted back in from the reserves. They were furious that they'd been picked and sent back out again. Um, and you know, a lot of people again, it's they didn't know where Korea was on a map. There was one chap um, we were talking about earlier. He was saying, if someone had given me Korea. I would have given it away the next day. I, I didn't like the place. I didn't care why I was fighting there. I didn't like the people, didn't like the environment. He, Why am I here? That view changes when you start to look at the rank structure further up. So a lot of officers, starting at lieutenant and higher, you start to get notions of the, the Cold War warrior mentality coming through. It's, I'm here to stop communism because if we don't stop them here, they'll be in, they'll be running through Berlin and they'll be running through Europe and it'll be the, the Second World War all over again. And that, you know, that, it's prevalent the higher up the rank chain you go. Um, but then again, there's a lot of people who they weren't particularly fussed. And there, were, there are some people, as strange as it may sound, who they just wanted to go and fight in Korea. It seemed like a particularly nice deployment. It was, well, I could be sent to Malaysia and sweat it out in a jungle, or I could stay here and do drill for the next year of my life, or I could go to Korea and get paid more. So you actually had a good number of people, even national servicemen who volunteered to go to Korea. But I wouldn't say that the purpose of fighting communism, the UN police action, that whole, the the rubber stamp on the Cold War narrative wasn't the driving factor amongst British soldiers. The driving factor amongst British soldiers was that they were in the British army and this was where the British army told them they had to be. That does shift when you talk to them in hindsight. Uh, So again, we, we touched on this earlier. When they look back on why they fought in Korea, their memory of what they were doing changes and their opinion of the matter changes. And, you know, this is very, very, well, this is more true of soldiers who have returned to Korea since. So the Korean, South Korean government is very, very pro veteran, internationally so. And they, you know, they work with the British Korean Veterans Association and, you know, they organize tours out to South Korea quite regularly. And that very much reshapes the opinion a lot of soldiers had of why they fought in Korea. So they would, you know, they would look at and they would sort of quite say very bluntly, I had no bloody clue what I was doing out there. I didn't want to be out there. And then they'll talk about going back since and there's this pride comes into their voice. There's this, I'm really glad I did what I did. But it's it's not like with the Second World War where they had this sort of great 
foe to sort of rally against in their own memory. It's something that's only come about in hindsight. So pride on reflection, <laughs> how I'd term it. And what about the role of letters from sort of family, friends and um, acquaintances back home in Britain? Were soldiers motivated um, by the fact that they were getting letters on a regular basis? Obviously, Korea is an incredibly long way from the United hmm. Kingdom, the other side of the world. Um so that's it's sort of one of the myths of the Korean War. One of the more enduring ones is that it was an isolated and distant place. But the mechanisms that Britain had in place for communicating were remarkably efficient. So Korea, if you think about it, Korea is not a remarkably long way from Hong Kong, especially so when you've got telegraphs and you've got aircrafts delivering post and mail. And it would take. It depended on the time of year, the time, you know, the stage of the war. But it could take a, between six weeks to one week, and again, depending on what is being sent, to get to you know, a, a message from central London to the front line on Korea. They had a remarkably efficient postal system in place. Um, but I, th- I think it was, on average, it took six weeks for a return message to come back to you, which you know, in to, in today's world might seem staggering. But at the time, that's not too bad. It's not too shabby at all. Um, and you know, I think at this point, the army had really recognised the importance of writing home and social communication with your families at home to soldiers' morale and to their well-being. So, as I say, it was actively encouraged across the board for the army to write home and you know, tell their families how they are and what they're doing. Um, so if you, it was free for any soldier to, you know, to get stationery and equipment and write home. That The entire postal service was free until you were sending a parcel. And even then it was heavily subsidised. It was not particularly expensive for a soldier in a foxhole 20 yards away from the North Koreans to send a parcel back home to his mum. And as I said, there were even telegraph. If you wanted to in particular, you could send a telegraph home that day. And again, there might be a few days lag on that. Um, and there are some very funny instances of soldiers. He'd sent his mum and dad a telegram home on Christmas Day and received a furious response because usually the only time the army sent people telegrams was to say to your family, I'm terribly sorry, your son was lost in defence of his country. So they got this letter through on Boxing Day from the army from Korea and it's a telegram and they'd fallen about themselves and been completely distraught. And it's his father had written in this long, this long ear puller about your poor mother was inconsolate for hours before we read that letter. And it was just, hi, mom, dad, having a good time. Merry Christmas. But it, it was hugely important. And I think the army recognised how important it was. And they they catered to how important it was. What about the role of coercive or disciplinary measures uh, put in place by the British Army to sustain morale? Were people, you know, motivated by the threat of court-martial or punishments that might come after committing some sort of minor, minor misdemeanour? Uh, they were. I wouldn't say it's any more or less than any other conflict and no more or less than the Second World War. Um, and again, this is quite difficult to to draw out of people's experiences because they wouldn't necessarily talk about what they've done wrong. There is still this sort of guilt left behind. So the interesting instances where it does come through, um, the punishment of what you know what the punishment would have been is it's almost like it, it's almost secondary to what they had done and what they are then telling you. Um, and what the army seems to have been. What the army seems to have been concerned about in terms of punishments was very much a continuation of the Second World War. So there was a lot of worry that, you know, if you were if you weren't taking care of your your personal hygiene, if you were being dirty and scruffy, 
you would get in trouble for that. Obviously, on the front line, there were a lot more lax about it. They weren't like, your hair must be a certain length. Because a lot of a lot of soldiers reflect that they were shocked at how shabby soldiers looked when they were on the front line, that they were unshaven, they had long hair. Um, but you know, a lot of disciplinary measures were aimed at keeping soldiers away from venereal diseases and you know getting drunk. And it was it was more or less the case that British soldiers weren't allowed to mix with the South Korean population for any great deal. Um, when they were near the big cities, they were they were almost kept in internment camps. They were called transit camps, um, and they were locked in until their train was ready to take them to the next place they were wanting to go. Um, and so I'd, I'd say it was a factor, but no more so than necessarily any other conflict. And one question I didn't write down, which I should have asked, which what about the role of masculine and sort of contemporary ideas of manhood in 1950s Britain? Did they shape the way soldiers? Absolutely they did. And I think that was a very, very significant part in how a lot of um, men conducted themselves on the front line and you know, returning from Korea as civilians in post-post-war Britain. Um so I've, I've mentioned the soldier who was with the Highland Regiment, who took this sort of very, he took his view of himself very, very seriously. And that I mustn't show any kind of weakness in front of the, these other these other men. I mustn't show any sort of lip wobbling. I've got to be stiff up a lip, despite the fact he'd very nearly just got eviscerated by a grenade. Um, and this, this view was sort of prevalent throughout the army, that soldiers were very... That, they conducted themselves according to masculinity. That there was this, there was always this view of how is what I'm doing being perceived? How are other people looking at me? Is what I'm doing overly effeminate? And almost this sort of this hyper masculine view of themselves takes over. And so, as I say, you have some soldiers who would be very, very lackadaisical in the face of danger to to a, a ridiculous extent so they would walk along the tops of the trenches to show that they're not scared of whatever's going to be coming over the trenches and you know g- generally being boyish almost like schoolyard masculinity and you know, this did trickle down throughout men's behaviors across the war like it was bad to be seen as weak and obviously this sort of this runs into some sort of areas where it's conflicting so you've got as I've mentioned earlier, soldiers taking almost mother, motherly levels of care of one another, but that all has to be balanced against acting and behaving masculine. Like it wasn't uncommon for soldiers to, you know, to talk about their their conquests in love and romance, and oh, look what I did! You'll never guess what I did last night. And um, one of the, one of the interviews I found is a soldier talking about the the most hyper masculine, like. Oh, I was out with six women the other night. And he was sat three rows behind him in a field cinema the whole night watching him. And then the next morning, it's, oh, I was in bed with a girl all night, lads. So my penultimate question is, what's the motivation of soldiers shaped by the unit that they were in, in terms of, for instance, if they were with an armoured unit, and I think you've touched on this before, you know, the way that they got the the driver to sleep to make sure he was alert. Hmm. and, And obviously their survival depended on him not going off the road or driving over a mine. Did that shape the way that soldiers behaved and worked together? Um, absolutely, 100%. So the, the general experience of the Korean War could be very, very different depending on, I would phrase it, it's depending on what the soldier was looking through when he was engaged in the conflict. So if you're looking at an infantryman, their view of the conflict is very much one from the foxhole, from the trenches. It, it's evocative of First World War language because you know, that's what their idea of a war was. The Second World War hadn't really formed its cultural behemoth yet in in the sort of in the touchstones of British memory. So they they'd seen things like 
all quiet on the Western Front. They'd read that war literature. They'd had those veterans talking to them. And so they'd framed their experience in those terms. But if you look at artillerymen and armoured units and behind the lines, their experience and how they interacted with the war was very, very different. Um, it's actually, if you look at armoured crews, particularly the ones who've been in combat, um, their view of the war is much more grisly because of the nature of how they engaged in, conflict, in combat. The North Koreans didn't have an excessive amount of anti-tank weaponry either, and a Centurion tank was more or less untouchable in combat unless it was out of ammunition. And you know, they, will talk, they would talk about you know, running over infantry like there were strips of corn. And it's just this different view of humanity and of a person. Whereas, the you know, if an infantryman, the view of killing was much more nuanced than you'd think. But at the end of the day, they have still looked down a rifle sight and killed a man. They have shot a person as a person. Whereas a tank commander has just pushed a gear forward and let the machine do the work for it. So you do have sort of very different approaches to the memory of what they did, depending on what a soldier was was doing at the time. Um, and again, it's, um, I mentioned before, my girlfriend's grandfather, or great-grandfather, sorry, um, was with the artillery uh, during the Battle of the Imjin. And his view of fighting and killing is completely different from what an infantryman's view of fighting and killing was. Because his view of fighting and killing was pulling a lever on a cannon behind the lines usually quite a long way behind the lines but sometimes quite close to but even so it's not like he was right next to the bodies the next day and so you do have behaviors and recollections change a great deal depending on what the role of the soldier was and my final question is where can learn more when are you going to put your phd into a monograph um hopefully it shouldn't be too long um obviously covid and the world as it is has put a lot of pauses on a lot of everyone's plans um yeah, and as I say, work work is um, having to work in the real world where people aren't sadly as interested in history as they could be doesn't leave a great deal of time for it. But I am hoping to come back to it as soon as I possibly can. Um, but as I say, my thesis is available with uh, Northumbria University's library. Please go and have a read of it because it seems a shame that no one else is. And um, yeah, that's, I'm afraid that's me for the moment. I'm I'm only a little tip of the iceberg on, on what I hope to do. Drew, thank you very much for your time. You are very welcome. Thank you very, very much for listening to me.